0: Black Cats Run, Episode 3, Learn to Fly, Segment 3E. I like workouts. I think they're good. I think they're an important part of training. I think people have been doing workouts, the idea of a specific session, right, with planned or differentiated periods of higher or lower intensity uh, since, you know, the beginning of the sport. And depending on how you look at that history, you could probably make the argument that the workout, the specific session of, you know, targeted, what we would say now, high intensity effort probably preceded all of the aerobic type activity. And that's probably, and by aerobic type activity, that's so vague, right? By aerobic type activity, I just mean to say the kind of work that's come to fill up you know so much of the time necessary to engage with this stuff the aerobic riding what you might say a zone two ride you might consider it to be the long run the aerobic running the base mileage um, for a runner and you know the different versions right different endurance sports have their different vernaculars but that kind of the benefit is the act of doing it it's sort of interesting because it's so critical and yet so underrated and underappreciated and i think the fact that it doesn't have a really convenient or easy vernacularism the way long runs do and and workouts do and recovery days but it's this additional thing that's in that space and without that you just don't see that level of success and we did 18 mile long runs um once a week, the last two years, I coached cross-country. And you know, we had a lot of success. That was the most successful seasons that we had. And obviously, we're doing other things besides that. But when you look across the United States and you look at successful high school cross-country programs, something that comes up very frequently, you know, are long runs in excess of 15 miles up to 20 miles. But a lot of people feel that doing that kind of running is unnecessary or you know even dangerous um, and i mean the idea that it's dangerous i think is foolish i mean people are you're concerned about people getting hurt that's going to happen in the high intensity work that's over programmed and out of reach in terms of the workout goals for most of the athletes i also think that you know the other harm is not going to come from the long runs you know, going out and getting gradually sort of tired and then accomplishing something awesome and epic, you know, especially in our relatively, in some ways, sedentary um, ways of life, at least in, you know, a lot of Western cultural spaces, you know, to be out running 15 to 20 mile runs while your peers are, you know, going Home and playing video games I I think that that Just enhances that sense of accomplishment And when you know Not that I think the Jim Ryan story Should be our benchmark for how we want to train You know athletes um, But You know when they're doing those Big workouts you know and they're doing Their training they ran a lot It wasn't just intensity It was a lot of Running overall And when we look at this stuff, it has value and it's significant value and it's more valuable than we would think. And I think we go back now to what we were talking about at the end of the last segment of how are we deciding, you know, what the value of a workout is. It's one thing to look at a workout and say, well, I think the value of this workout is that you're doing these efforts at you know, lactate threshold, you're doing these efforts in sweet spot, you're doing these VO2 max intervals. And the physiological model, you know, that a coach is using as their reference material is telling them to do that. And it's interesting how often when you look into a lot of the coaching services that are out there, I don't say this to necessarily ridicule or belittle people engaged in coaching. But just to be thought provoking, you know, just sort of like shake the tree just just a little bit to maybe get people to sort of reflect and say, okay, am I falling into this trap and am I leaving, you know, am I leaving potential benefit on the table because I'm in that trap? And I think what we want to recognize is this tendency to just sort of pick the one model and stick with that. And then we're devising these workouts and the idea is, well, we need to do this workout. But we weigh that against the alternative, right? And we were saying that, you know, sometimes a workout, which you maybe say, well, this is necessary. Well, the alternative isn't to accomplish nothing. The alternative, I think, is to accomplish, you know, and let's even be generous towards the benefit of these workouts. You're probably still accomplishing 95%. And sometimes you could accomplish hundred percent I mean if you look at some of these ideas with these training models and I think you see this as a piece of rhetoric around trainer road for example which is a uh, online coaching service you know workout you know protocol service that is popular in in cycling I mean they're basically sort of marketing this on the basis of well people don't have a lot of time to train and in theory it would be more effective to ride your bike for X hours and, you know, the stuff I've looked at, it's sort of like four to six hour rides or eight hour rides, which I'm thinking, I don't think you really necessarily need to be banking rides of that length, especially, you know, with what I'm sort of suggesting is this idea of why are we only relying on cycling to be good at cycling? I mean, after a certain point, right, we're not just looking for muscular benefits specific to the act of cycling. At a certain point, a lot of the training we're doing is for the aerobic benefits. Something like running is much more time efficient. And by time efficient, I mean time efficient, not less beneficial. I mean the same benefit in less time. If you can run 30 miles you know, and ride your bike, or even if you can run 15 miles and do your bike work, I think you're going to probably be fitter than people who just do that. And you know, as I've indicated before with my brother and with uh, Jillian Bennett, that's been what we've worked on. And you know, you see, you know, the benefit of that again and again and again. And I think that it's really something that's missed. And I think you it's not just sourced and nut pieces of evidence. I think if you look at, you know, triathlon, I think triathlon's been telling us, us this for a long time, that, you know, they're able to go out and do good things on the bike and the run, and they're not spending, you know, all of their time in any one discipline, and they're still doing this stuff at these really high levels. And I think the sort of assumption has been that, well, you know, they're not necessarily as good at those things as you think. But you'd have to wonder for people like, you know, Gustav and Christian, you know, how fast would they run if they just focused on the marathon? Would they be sub-205 marathoners? I don't know. Obviously, there's a point at which nobody is running faster. I don't think they're going to be going out there and battling Elliot Kipchoge to the line or anything like that. But I would think that, you know, 206, 207, 208, 209, certainly 211, 210 would be, you know, realistic. Obviously, you would make adjustments in your training. And part of that is because you would be able to, right, they would be able to, you know, if they were just doing a marathon, you might do a little more running, per se. But I think if they dropped all of their cycling and their swimming, and they only ran, I don't think they'd see that improvement. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing with triathlon, right, is that you can do different things and still get to that same goal. And, you know, one of the I think the interesting parts of triathlon is because of the discipline of cycling being in there, like you know, you it a lot, cycling something just accesses so much more time of activity. And the nature of those long distance triathlon races, right, is You know, endurance is a huge thing, and the cycling gives you a means to really go out and spend hours and hours and hours being physically active continuously in a way that you really can't get at running. And, you know, pool, we're saying maybe, uh, or we can imagine, you know, is less, like, intensive um, in, in terms of the way running just sort of, like, will give you this total body fatigue, but swimming in a pool for that long, I think, would make, you know, your head explode from tedium after a certain point, because it's just not a very interesting environment to be in. And you can't socialize when your head's in the water. So when we're thinking about these concepts as athletes, as coaches, right, we need to compare and say, what is our opportunity cost? What's the value of the next best alternative? Anything we do has pluses and minuses. But a lot of times, like when we're doing work, because we think it's going to target the lactate threshold, and this is you know, why that train a road thing is important is it's well, you want to do this because you need to do this higher intensity thing in order to get the same benefit. And then it becomes well, these higher intensity workouts are more beneficial per minute. And at what level can we really say that that's really the rational way to think about this? Because they're not the same. Um, and I don't, and if you're designing workouts, Because it's a, it's a, like literally a shortcut in terms of a shorter, you're cutting time, you're cutting the time shorter to achieve the same benefit. Well, I think we're not appreciating, you know, how much of the time, like, is necessary to get that benefit. And people have done low volumes of repetition training. If you go back to German interval training ideas and models in the nineteen. 30s, you know, one of the things that people say, you know, retrospectively about that is, you know, form would build up very quickly, right? And then it would deteriorate very quickly too. And, you know, what Arthur Lydiard says is that when you just have interval training, it's extremely difficult to manage that. And he tried that and the people he was doing the running and the training with, they tried that and they couldn't really basically get themselves to feel good in any particular day. And I think that's so significant to think about. And I really want to emphasize that because, you know, in, you know, 1950s, right, you know, there they are, right, trying the interval training, and they couldn't get it to work, because they couldn't feel good when they needed to. And I think that's the same experience people are having today. And, you know, Arthur Lidiot also says, Champions are everywhere. All you need to do is train them. And if you look at the level of success he had from people from a specific population area, you know, that was not like we might say now, we have these sort of like quasi, um, I mean, you could argue that these are sort of quasi like racial theories of, you know, well, the Kenyans are so good or the Ethiopians are so good, these, you know, nationalities right? Nationalities, remember that, right, are so good because, you know, of, you know, this uniqueness or that uniqueness. And there's no question that there have been a lot of successful people from these athlete, from these, you know, athlete populations. And in Kenya, specifically, if you look at the uh, Kalijan tribe, they've just had a ton of people um, come out of that social ethnic group and be really successful. And obviously, physiology is a variable, and obviously genetics are a variable, you know, and obviously, you know, you know, specialization of body types applies. But I think, you know, sometimes we overestimate that. And, you know, our implicit biases, again, are constantly selecting people out of the potential athletic pool. And I think, you know, Peter Snell was about 5'10 and 180 pounds, you know, and he's world record, setting the world records, and he's, you know, two-time Olympic champion in the 1500 and a gold in, in the half mile. Like, you don't do that by accident. You know, that wasn't in some sort of phase of sport where it was like the equivalent of a gym class mile, you know, and they're creating those athletes out of that population. And I think what that shows is when you move away from this interval model, right, which, you know, okay, maybe the interval workout is more, physiologically, supposedly, right, productive, but that's only relative to the things that we can actually quantify physiologically. And I think people who know enough about biology and physiology, know that we're not really at our maximum level of understanding of these things. That's just, you know, I think becomes very obvious as you look at this stuff, and that there's going to be a lot more potential um, metrics that we're going to be able to identify. And I think, too, there's the implication that there are things that if we could quantify them, they would be helpful. If there was a mitochondrial count, you know that that would probably absolutely, you know, that's that would be a paradigm shift. So you can kind of anticipate that there are going to be paradigm shifts that come down. Because I'm not saying the physiological models are going to go away, and I'm not even saying that they should go away. I just think that we're not thinking about them. We're just sort of deferring to them, and they're they're just telling us what to do. And we're just sort of, as coaches, getting... And athletes, too, but I mean, especially the coaches, um, I think are just c- getting cast into this like automated role. And I think it's hard because I think, you know, you have to have a particular kind of energy or enthusiasm to puzzling through this stuff if you don't want to just sort of get sucked into that because they have a lot of gravity. So I can understand, totally understand why, you know, we do that. And there's always a temptation to sort of be like, well, you know, this model is offering this, like, you know, I guess we should just go with this because like, what do I know? But what do you know? You know the athlete. The athlete knows themselves. Together, you know the relationship. You know each other. Like, you know more about the actual problem. The physiological model doesn't really know much of anything about that actual problem or challenge when you think about it that way. So I think when, you know, again, continuing to just sort of focus in on that, you know, New Zealand um, example with Arthur Lydiard. And his group of runners, you know, maybe they're giving up the theoretical benefit of one session of one session, right? The intervals versus the other thing, but they're recognizing or they ended up recognizing that, well, in aggregate, we outperform the interval model, partly because we can feel good and we can do like what is productive day to day to day to day because we feel good, but also because... Um, the ability to predict how you're going to feel makes it way easier to actually plan training. And, you know, I think we need to, and that's, I think, so critical because we want to, as much as possible, avoid failing workouts. And it's just not a good space to be in for two major reasons. Number one, when we feel bad, uh, our engagement with athletics declines you know i talk to people whom you know will sort of feel great running when they have somebody else to run with but then they try to run by themselves and it's like it just feels uncomfortable and, and things hurt and it starts to feel like maybe they're getting injured and i don't think that they're fabricating this stuff i think they're actually feeling it and we might look at like well you have a heart rate monitor yeah well let's pull that down by five beats and I mean, I do this myself. If I'm out running and I'm not feeling good, you know, and you don't have a person to distract you, like sometimes you can get really sucked into that feeling. And like you need, that's becomes more important when you're training by yourself to feel good, you know, and feeling good doesn't mean necessarily going easy. You can be going, you know, you can be slamming it and feel awesome, right? But you can't rely on that sort of like, man, I am wheeling it feeling awesome to get you through training all the time so just pull it back because you know again opportunity cost if you're not and you know if you feel great you can run an extra 10 minutes and still feel great versus grinding out whatever your benchmark is and the same thing on the on riding right if you're under control and sometimes all it takes is like in running the first 10 minutes or in riding the first five miles first 10 miles if you can just like be extra relaxed during that window, then the rest of it will take care of itself and you're not going to get in the hole. But when we're sort of like getting on it and trying to get after it and it can happen unconsciously, we get in that deficit, you know? And like, that's another form of, of failing workouts. That's really minor. And, and the point is that even when something like that minor can happen, it can disengage us from where we're trying to get. But we don't want that. We need to avoid that. That's not the space we want to be in. And that's just with like what is basically a fairly relaxed, um, you know, not mentally taxing per se effort. And then you talk about workouts, these things that are supposed to be the things that are going to determine your ability to be good. And and the messaging, the cultural messaging, I feel is very much if you can't do workouts, you're never going to be anything more than, you know, a recreational athlete. You're going to be sort of the, you know, afternoon hiker you know, equivalent of a cyclist or a runner or whatever. And I just think that that's, you know, a really unhealthy way to try to this idea that, well, you just got to kind of intimidate people into forcing themselves to do this stuff. Because if you can do right, like we're saying, if you can do training more consistently and you can feel good, and if you feel good, your training is going to be better. It's going to be more productive Right? Like my brother and I, I mentioned in the last segment, finding basically different ways in different spaces to accomplish what is, as much as you can compare people who race at different performance levels, accomplish the exact same thing. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to do what he was doing, and clearly he didn't want to go out and do the, do the loop the way I was doing it. But we both accomplished our goal. And if we had gone about it in the other way, it would have been uh, if we had switched, it would have been less productive. Um, and so, you know, you look for it and in, in look for these opportunities, right, based on what's going to work best in the aggregate. And, you know, this is where I tell athletes that there's a disconnect between plans and then what we're doing in practice. And I guess by in practice, I mean, literally, right, you might go to practice, but I also mean in practice in terms of what we're like actually implementing and executing. And I have made elaborate laminated color coded plans. I enjoy doing it. And on some level, it's just satisfying to think through this stuff. And I think there needs to be a plan. And I think you have to have a concept and a vision of how to get there. And that word concept is something that I've honed in on as key. Where I think that for you know, looking at plans as a coach, as an athlete, looking at plans as a coach with athletes together, you know, I say this plan is an attempt to articulate a concept, and there's probably more than one way to articulate that concept. And if I'm the one who's written the plan, right, obviously being in that position of authorship, I'm going to say that. You know, this is what I ultimately arrived at that I thought best articulated that concept. But our understanding of the concept is going to evolve, right? And that's kind of one of the meta goals of this podcast, right? Is to continually evolve and develop our understanding of the concept because it it doesn't stay constant because our information changes and our circumstances change, et cetera, et cetera. And our goal is to execute 100% of the concept. And executing the plan to the letter might not do that, okay? So I know that might seem sort of contradictory, but doing 80% of what was planned and 20% becomes other things, that might end up being 100% of the concept, right? And that's that adaptability and flexibility, right? Versus doing 100% of what was planned, you might end up achieving 75% of the concept. And when you play out these plans, you know, and I'll, and I'll plan on the scale of six, of a year, you know, and then these plans never play out, but because you're constantly reevaluating. And I don't, you know, really like necessarily using, you know, martial, um, you know, or military metaphors when we're talking about doing athletics, but I think in this case, you know, it is a reasonable concept that, you know, the expression no plan survives contact with the enemy. I mean, I think that is an environment in which people, in order to you know, be successful at that, they have to be able to make very clear, specific plans and be ready to change them as the situation around them is changing. And in athletics, and I think in many other contexts, we benefit from appreciating that we need to be prepared to do the same thing. And that's where, you know, we're taking that concept of on any given workout, you know, maybe you need to recognize right away, this isn't going to work. I mean, I've injured myself, like, you know, literally, you know, gotten injuries in training from just over committing to something that I've mapped out and I've mapped it out for myself, you know, and I, and I even in that instance, I can't be like, well, I'm coaching myself, right, in a sense. And I still can't, you know, even though the coach is literally right there with me, because it's me, I still can't make that adjustment. Because once it's down there, it's just that all of that cultural conditioning tells you, you must execute this. And I think we want to really be willing to say and ask the question, you know, how fair is it to ask ourselves to keep experiencing this kind of Icarus syndrome again and again and again. What is the toll on the athlete to do that? I don't think it's productive. I don't think it builds that feel-good space and outcome that we're trying to get to. One space um, where I see what I think is a reflection of this problem is in cycling, recently more and more. And I think one of the ways it's come up is, um, athletes in cycling are looking for opportunities, um, to race gravel. And that's sort of been an interesting process to watch how that professionalization of that is evolving. Well, people try to sort of engage in dialogue where they, you know, or rhetoric where they pretend that they're not just like out there to do well, I you know, this is a better economic opportunity for me, so I'm doing this instead. But it's well, no, I'm free spirited or whatever, because right, if you say you're free spirited, it will actually be better for your economic opportunity than if you just directly say, honestly, right, what's your economic opportunity? Um and that, you know, that was the calculation you made, that there was your own personal opportunity cost to that. But that switch I think has also come in the context of people talking about, and I think this is Genuinely, I don't think people are strictly being uh, cynical, but I also say, would say that if sport is your income, I don't think it's, you should be thinking in those terms, right? You should be looking for your opportunity, just like anybody with any career, right? You should be looking for the best opportunities for you and what you're pursuing if it, if it comes in, comes down to your income um, and, and also with things you do for recreation, right? If you're a recreation level and amateur athlete, right, you should be looking for what's the best opportunity or experience for you too it's just maybe a different perspective because you're not that's not like a profit or like an income driven driven point of view but cyclists have talked about well I just sick of you know this other discipline of cycling and in some cases it's just I'm sick of cycling in general or you'll hear and read things about you know and I don't have a specific example in mind when I say this I want to be clear about that but you know you know, anecdotes and stories about, you know, so-and-so transitioned from being a junior to being a senior pro and, you know, hated it and quit. And, you know, this sort of, I'm burned out, I can't take this anymore. And we've hypothesized about how, on this podcast, about how possibly kind of like training models are actually maybe more of the problem than the sport itself or the circumstances surrounding the sport, although those things also matter. Right. And, you know, that's a part of feeling good is if you're in a space, you know, a social space that doesn't feel good, then you don't feel good. And that's going to limit your ability to engage with that, too. But I think cycling journalism has just sort of been on these burnout, you know, narratives like a pack of hyenas on a carcass, which I guess in some ways is unsurprising, but to me kind of disappointing because I think it's sort of like, Tragedizing, um, this or creating this tragic narrative of, you know, these pros. And I think it's sort of this cycling running doesn't seem to talk like this, but cycling has this weird sort of like, are we all supposed to be secretly envious of being professional, but at the same time, like glad that we're not professional because, at this, but still, we want to be professional because we want to be awesome. And it's this really difficult sort of narrative to keep up with. But there's a lot of double talk about that. And this idea of like, well, look at they're all burning out and miserable. It almost sort of reads to me in a subtle way like there's some sort of subtext of like, you know, gleefulness of like, well, they, you know, you know, they was just the Midas touch, right? Uh, It ended up being more of a curse than a blessing. But I don't think that this quitting or this burnout thing is inevitable. I don't think that it's like an essential problem to just pursuing this stuff where everybody's just gonna reach their breaking point. It's just inevitable. I think that folds into the path of discipline mindset that there's just this like intense hardship that's difficult to overcome. You know and and by difficult to overcome it means you can only overcome it for so long and that eventually you just can't take it anymore and you have to retire or give up i think the problem is more of a fundamental issue and i think the difference between essential and fundamental here is to say that essential means that it's not something that can be fixed or changed because it's literally in the inherent character or nature of that you know like you know the laws of physics that, you know, govern the structures and, and, you know, of the universe. But a fundamental issue is an issue that I think has to do with how we view things. You know, fundamentalism, I think, is, you know, usually tied to ideologies that are completely intractable and dogmatic and unwilling to change to the point where, like, they sort of impose an essentialist quality over their fundamentalism, but it doesn't have to be like that. And I think that's happened in this athletic space, too, for people in cycling. And I'm sure runners deal with it. It just doesn't seem to be that media narrative, because I think cycling media is just constructed differently in a lot of ways. You know, and maybe it's more specific to cycling journalism in the U.S. in particular, rather than cycling journalism as a whole, because I think there's this uh, sense of like, you know, the Forbidden City um, psychology and in, in American cycling where it's just like it doesn't matter how good we get we're just like not good enough to get to the highest level you know in terms of like the world tour and it's like this like mystery but I would say I don't think it's that complicated I just think that the way people are approaching the training is not working you know uh, people blame it on everything else but it has to be methodological at the end of the day. And these, you know, moving these things that are more fundamental issues into these essentialist issues, partly because it again feeds into this like tragedy of American cycling, right? And I, I think, again, that idea of, I mentioned this in an earlier episode in the podcast, but sort of this idea of, you know, cyclists as being these sort of like beatnik, outlier, easy rider, culturally marginalized figures. And then that becomes your identity. And there's this sort of need to perpetuate that, even if that's ultimately holding you back. But I mean, it's like when people talk about this idea that, oh, well, you know, really creative people, you know, who struggle with depression, if they go on medication, they can't be creative anymore. And I think those kinds of notions of like, the only way to achieve is to be unhealthy and stuff like that. I think is just this rom- hopeless, romanticized notion of what this stuff is. And I don't think it's the right way to go. And I think people ultimately limit their experience. And I suppose we have to respect people's autonomy for self-direction. Um, and if what is validating or worthwhile for somebody is the construction and engagement uh, construction of an engagement with a personal narrative of like everything is tragic. Then I think that, you know, maybe that's where like they sh- get to be, but I don't think it needs to be like that. And maybe in some of those instances, there's benefit to move outside of that, you know, and one explanation of this sort of development or this slide into the space is that we've all become drones slave to this hive mind that through our collective deference and lack of curiosity, we've just sort of given in and we aren't using physiology as empowerment, but rather as self subjugation. Right. And it's like, and that's the whole idea of, well, you know, the American cyclist is just not good enough to reach that high level of achievement, and even though they're out there, you know and and that's a part of the like the sort of like tragic you know quixotic aspect of that you know of just like, well, it doesn't matter, you know they're doing everything they can do, they're really getting out there and executing that you know optimal physiological model, and so if they're not getting there, that's just like the tragedy of American cycling is that Americans aren't good enough at cycling, and I think that's false. I think that it's more of a core issue and I don't, and I don't think it's, and not to get, you know, um, political within the space of cycling sport per se. I mean, I'm sure we will at some point, but that's not the goal right now, but I don't even think it's when people like say, well, that's just USAC USA cycling. I think USA cycling does a really bad job. And I think most people would agree with that, but you know, the AAU you know, did a terrible job for American runners for a long time. And, you know, American runners were still able to, you know, find ways to progress. And so maybe there's stuff to be learned there. I do think that USAC should change. And I do think that it it limits the capacity for riders to achieve. I do think that the lack of the right kind of races matters. And I do think, but that's a part of it is like most of running, running doesn't rely you know, on USATF, right? There's all these other organizations and stuff that build these races. And maybe that's what Gravel ultimately will actually help with is it will give the opportunities for the kinds of like hardcore, challenging, real, regular and frequent racing experiences that sort of like will allow the development and sort of of training and of our, our mindsets and, and these things in a different way. And that, you know, maybe that will sort of but we can also see how that could sort of you know, slide into just further reinforcing the pursuit of the holy grail of the perfect training intensity. So let's start breaking down some of these physiological models in specific. I feel like I've sort of alluded to this stuff and then talked about specific aspects of how these models are implemented. But I think this is going to be pretty cool because we're going to do this across running and cycling. Now, one model of athletic experience that I'm particularly interested in and is going to become a theme which if you haven't already picked up on in the pod, will start to become clear as we go through more and more episodes, is the multidiscipline athlete. And the context specifically in which I'm thinking of it is the context of running and cycling. Not necessarily to do duathlon, but instead uses both disciplines as a regular aspect of training to just target running events and cycling events, you know, and they may only do the running events, but do both modes of training or vice versa. Okay. And you could certainly do Duathlon, I'm not trying to say that that's bad, but to me, I think this is a total paradigm shifter because it really goes against the principle of specificity, which we said, have said historically has its origin going all the way back to, okay, the obstacle of the race is the velocity of the race how can we dominate and engage specifically with that velocity? Um, So we're looking at fitness, right, as less specific than the ways in which we've traditionally defined it. Uh, Shockingly, right, you know, that definition of narrowly focusing on the demand or the perceived advance of demands of race event hasn't really changed. You know, that used to just be when we say velocity of the race, we're really becomes a proxy for pain. Um, and it used to be pain, just pain. And now it still is pain, right? Engaging that level of effort, exertion. But it's got, you know, but now um, repackaged, I think, with a liberal dose of, you know, Latin conjugates in the form of biochem, physiology, terminology. But it's basically still a go out there and feel like an egg on a summer sidewalk experience. And we talked about this idea of, well, did physiology cause this pivot, right, or this paradigm shift from old school to new school? But now what we're looking at is an evaluation where we're saying that maybe that's not exactly the right way to think about it and that maybe it's just sort of a rebranding. And I think that happens a lot more than people sometimes realize in culture and history in general. And again, we're saying that these physiological models paint us into the pain corner, because they're building on the wrong models of achievement. Um, And they aren't representative practices. The practices of elite athletes aren't necessarily elite practices. They're the practices of elites, but they're not elite practices. And that means that that's what those elite athletes do, but they're not the best practices that we should actually be trying to apply or identify uh, or make sense of. And I think when you look at the practices of most people, it's not, for example, following these strict products of periodization. So why is the correct conclusion to say that, oh, well, those people are just, they just suck or they're not talented, right? Is this really an issue of talent or is this an issue of talent is sort of being, is this thing that is come to be perceived as this rare and unique thing, because these models are really, like, ineffective for most people, right? Because the assumption is the average person can't handle work. They're too weak, so they need less volume and more specific work, right? Or the time crunched fill in the blank. And that's true, right? Time is a limiting factor for people. We don't, by no means do I think that we live in some sort of a society that's organized around leisure time. And, you know, to some extent, I suppose some of this podcast is more you know, towards people who are engaged um, in the use of leisure time in these ways and have access to that. But I do think there's some transference because we're also talking about performance in general and and experience um, of challenging things in general. And I think most people encounter those in some domains or others in their life. But when we think about this idea of, you know, person can't handle the work, less volume, more specific work, um, I think the opposite is true. Because doing this makes people feel like absolute crap and it undermines their ability to feel good in a train. So, when you train for cycling and running both, there's this interesting effect that occurs. You can't go as hard as you could if you do just one or the other, because now you're looking at a couple different things that I think force that. First of all, you're looking at a much greater minimum of work volume uh, needed uh, to cover both activities, right? And we say, minimum sorry i said that backwards didn't i minimum volume of work um which we're not saying to do a minimum we're saying that the minimum has gone up okay so what might be a minimum in a single activity context might now have changed and we don't think that work by the way can only be measured in terms of hours because if you're a cyclist and you look to apply this approach Um, or bring aspects of this approach to what you're doing, you're probably going to end up doing less volume. But maybe that's good, right? Like maybe, you know, feeling that you have to get to 30 hours a week, you know, isn't something that's sustainable. And maybe that should be like a particular training intervention that you do for a limited period of time uh, before it turns into like a path of discipline thing, right? And then you can transition to something else. And I think the other reason why you can't, so first of all, right, to do all that work, you have to have a minimum level of volume. And because the volume is then the high, is a higher level, um, you can't do as much intensity because in too much intensity creates too much fatigue, and then you can't really do the volume. Um, and the other thing is you have to basically exercise twice a day. Because I think from a central nervous system, muscular viewpoint, you need to do both every day whenever possible because to get the most benefit out of them, you have to be the most comfortable doing them. And that means you have to engage with them on a regular basis, you know, and I understand, right. That that's difficult for people, but I think at the same time, number one, if we're in a space where we're feeling good, it's something that we want to spend our time on. So we start seeking out doing that instead of sort of checking it off of our list every day. Um, The other thing is we're also talking about like, well, how do we get good at this stuff? And there is a level of, you know, consistency and carving out time and, you know, doing stuff and might not be like the theoretically most ideal condition. You know, for me, I get up at five and I know people do stuff way earlier than that, you know, but I find that challenging and and difficult. And, you know, but I do that because if I want to, I'm not going to do both activities, um, in sort of back to back, um, you know, right. I do one in the morning. That's when I run and I do my riding in the afternoon, uh, unless it's like a issue where I've got wicked fatigue. And then I know I have the option to be like, okay, if I'm really actually legitimately tired, um, and I'm not just trying to put this off from a short term sort of like, you know, apathy, I can, I can pass on the morning run. Or I can switch and just do a more an afternoon jog, and that's what I did recently to recover from you know that Sunday training day example I was talking about in the last segment. Um, and I think we do end up seeing a better athlete uh, if you see Camden, uh, my brother, and Jillian, like both of them have low specific intensity. They're not hitting the intensities outlined in these models, but I would argue. That they actually, I mean, that's low specific intensity in the traditional sense. But I argue in the sense of what I think specific really is that their specific intensity is really high, and you know, be, and this is how I feel this is true, because I think if you're being specific, then you should be recovering well, right? And we'll, we'll use that word recovery. Um, we should be showing good recovery, which means that our training sessions are going well. It doesn't matter what protocols or interventions of recovery you're applying. You as an athlete are not recovering if you're going out and you're failing to do the things you're setting to do in training. And yes, sometimes the conclusion is also that it doesn't matter how much I recover, these goals are just like beyond my reach. That can be another possible conclusion. And sometimes we need to be pushed to get to that level of understanding. But, you know, and the other thing is, You know, we wouldn't be getting better. We wouldn't be seeing these improvement with these guys um, in their training if they weren't, you know, being specific because that's what they're doing is they're super compensating and the authentic sense of that is that they're getting better because that's really all super compensation means is that as a consequence of doing fatiguing things, you become faster and more resistant to fatigue over the long term. So we're being specific in the way that actually matters and so you can prove in a sense that you're being specific and I'll try at some point maybe to see if I can come up with like a hypothetical graph that might reflect an outcome a confirmation or outcome of a study that might look into this just for fun um, and, and put that up on the Instagram but I think that we know uh, if we're getting to where we want to be right which we're defining as being specific because we're seeing high quality improvements in performance and we're seeing just generally a positive experience. And the positive experience is that people are doing hard things and they feel good and they're enjoying doing it and they're continuing to seek that out. And it's exciting and it's validating and it's fun in the way that people like reading books and watching TV shows and playing video games or cooking or playing music that it's fulfilling, it's self-actualizing, it's contributing to their sense of self-esteem. It's not this form of you know, self-flagellation to get to where they need to be. So I think if you don't define specialization in that way, this is an empowering paradigm, okay? And I would encourage you to really challenge that assumption of what specialization is. So now we're back to Daniel's running formula. And for some people in cycling um, and running, I think that we want to say is recognize is this is like really impactful and influential. And I think to some sense, we're using it as emblematic of other things. But if if you're interested, get the book. Um, It's still worth reading and thinking about. I don't think it's like... And we're not saying that these things are like totally wrong and horrible. We're just saying that, right, there's limitations. But the key pieces, I think in the Daniels model are three things. Number one, that people do more volume than is of just general activity aerobic training that is productive because it and it takes away from specific targeted training. Uh, Number two, that there are, you know, basically a handful of particular kinds of workouts targeted different intensities. And specifically that there are Going to be areas of intensity that you shouldn't work at in between these um, as you move up that intensity ladder. And the third piece is this thing that is the V dot. And those of you who know Daniel's running formula will know immediately what I'm talking about. The V dot is a scale of, um, there's different versions of the chart, but it's supposed to be a sort of projection of your VO2 max based on your. PR for a given distance, and the chart is oftentimes uses your five k or your mile um, as a reference point, and it starts at a V dot. At least in the version I have uh, that I'm referencing, it starts at a V dot of thirty, and it goes all the way up to eighty-five. In terms of performance, at the thirty V dot, the reference is having a best time of a nine eleven in the mile. Or a best time of 30-40 for 5,000 meters. At the other end of the chart, basically around world record pace today, out of 85, that's a mile time of 340. The world record is 343. Uh, El garouge we don't know if he was on EPO based on the time period in the sport and his level of proficiency. That's definitely a question. Um and then a 12.37 for the 5K. From that information, you can derive these different training paces. There is the easy long pace. There is the marathon pace. We might think of marathon pace in cycling terms as being like your aerobic threshold. So if you've ever done lactate testing, you might think of that in a really approximate sense as being around 2 millimoles of lactate where your wattage is at at that level. And I say a general sense because there's a lot of evidence that suggests that not everybody is actually hitting their aerobic threshold at two millimoles, nor is everybody actually hitting their uh, lactate threshold at four millimoles. But those are the terms that we've used for people who are familiar with that. Um, and so from the marathon pace, you go to tempo pace, which is the equivalent of threshold pace. So if cycling, this is where we're at the two by 20 minute Workout intensity, that kind of like iconic modern cycling workout. Then we go to interval pace, which is, you know, we can think of as VO2 max. If you've ever done in cycling, right, And again speaking to the just cyclists. If you've ever done, you know, VO2 max reps, you know, or really high reps of high intensity reps um, or sometimes high intensity training. That's what we're looking at there. And then you have this uh, thing called um, rep pace. Um, which is sort of equated to, equated to economy, and I don't. This is something that I don't really feel stands out as having a direct parallel in cycling. But the point is, you can look at these models, and you can pick a value, and it tells you what you should run for a given pace. Um, and you go across, and apparently, right, that's all you need to know, and that you should be going and doing those paces. But what's the implication? The implication is that there's these empty spaces in between. So what I've done is I have gone through and I have specifically mapped out um, what my projected Daniels running formula is. And then we also have mapped out and said what is my specific projected intensity um, for the cycling training zones. And then I have sort of tried to crosswalk between them and say okay, what does this mean in terms of like an aggregate model? And I think what you see is when you look at the perspective of, okay, if we do cycling and running in combination, we're going to create a better performing cyclist and a better performing runner. And then if you, what are you left with, right? How are you supposed to do that physiologically? You're going to combine those models, but your volume is higher and you have to spend more time practicing these different things. Now, I know for a lot of triathletes, the strategy seems to be to really spend not much time in any given discipline so that you can maintain these specific intensities. But I think that you're probably really undercutting your endurance. But if you're competing against everybody who's applying the same strategy or or by and large is applying that similar approach, right, that's where you see a limit. You know, you're going to be limited in sort of your ability to reach conclusions. So next segment, we're going to go into my numbers. We're going to discover exactly why I did not become a six-time Olympic gold medalist, you know, what prevented me from becoming the next Pavo Nermi. This and many other essential mysteries of life will be solved on the pod, Black Cat's Run. Thanks for checking in today for another segment of our Learn to Fly episode. Next time, we're going to learn why I don't fly quite so high. Hey, if you are enjoying the pod, if you're enjoying hearing what we're talking about, you're finding this thought-provoking, encourage people you know to check it out. Join the Instagram at Black Cats Run. Um, Let's make that space, continue to grow that space so that can become a place where we can go and we can all share our different perspectives, ideas, other things that we want to see represented, covered in the pod, questions we might have. Um, and we'll also, like I said, be posting some visuals. I am going to post, so here's your little uh, teaser. I'm going to post some graphics of this data that I'm going to be looking at because I think when I'm describing my numbers, it's going to be difficult um, to sort of just keep that all in your head. So you'll be able to pull up on uh, your Insta app and go right to our page at Black Cats Run and you'll be able to pull up this data and refer to it. So thanks for checking in and we will catch you next time.